The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, David Conrad. What a fascinating career in the world of, of capital raising and private equity, from Guggenheim Partners to Focus Point Capital. He really has seen just a little bit of everything and is very, very knowledgeable about how that side of the investment world works. If you're at all interested in a variety of diversified and non-correlated strategies, what it's like raising capital for both emerging and existing managers, and playing in the world of credit, leasebacks, music industry, uh, royalty funding, as well as traditional private equity, you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with Focus Point Private Capital Group's David Conrad. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is David Conrad. He is the co-founder and CEO at Focus Point Private Capital Group and Lansing Investments. He played a key role in sourcing six separate Guggenheim-sponsored uh, strategies. Collectively, those raised over $6 billion of limited partner money. He also helped to establish the Guggenheim Private Fund Group with more than $7 billion in fund allocations. David Conrad, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thank you. Glad to be here. So, so let's start in the middle. You've been working in the asset management industry for a long time, uh, but let's start with your role at Guggenheim Partners. Uh, you were there when the firm was formed in, in 2000. Tell us about your role and what you did for them. Sure. I left uh, HSBC Group at the end of 1999, and uh, some friends of mine uh, that I'd known a long time had uh, came, on, came out of the fixed income side at a number of investment banks, generally uh, top II-rated mortgage research and more traders fixed income uh, salesman, and uh, to raise third-party capital, a broker-dealer is required. So I established a f little fundraise-up group at this small broker-dealer, and uh, with the knowledge that we were going to try to create a financial brand out of a museum name. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the founders of the broker-dealer was very close to the Guggenheim family, uh, the father and the son, that were owners of this brand, and we spent a, a little bit of time during 2000, and in October 2000, we merged the broker-dealer with uh, the Guggenheim brothers, created Guggenheim Partners, and then also in the same month closed on, I believe it was $28 million in working capital, and then, we, and then we had a reverse merger also in the same month with a commercial paper conduit in Chicago by the name of Liberty Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And the CEO and founder of Liberty Hampshire, Mark Walter, is still Guggenheim CEO today. Hmm. That's quite interesting. How did being at Guggenheim 
when it was founded, affect both your career and the way you think about private equity? I, I was exposed to private equity when I was at HSBC Group after uh, business school. And uh, that's where I was exposed to it in the early 1990s uh, when I HSBC was on an acquisition binge in mm-hmm. the uh, late 80s, early 90s and acquired some asset management businesses in the U.S. And when I graduated business school, uh, joined, joined them. And I was generally calling on institutions raising long-only Southeast Asian equity mandates. And mm-hmm. at that time, only the largest pension funds and institutional investors would make an allocation to such a narrow strategy. Mm-hmm. And so it got me, uh, it allowed me to start a dialogue with some of the largest institu- institutional investors in the United States uh, marketing those products. And through that, I was introduced to an individual that owned 25% of a management company and HSBC owned 75% of where he had two small $35 million private equity funds focused on Southeast Asia and China. Uh, performance looked pretty interesting. And uh, his goal in 1992, I believe, 93, was to try to raise some capital for the United States. And was that your entree into the was, world that, of private equity? That, yeah, that was my entree into, and we went down to, I think it was Merrill Lynch, to uh, talk to their fund placement. Uh, my boss was a CEO. There were six of us, and the CEO told the uh, general partner, a guy named David Patterson, you know, to take myself down there. And I saw the fees that were uh, <laughs> that Merrill Lynch would earn on raising a private equity fund versus the fees you know I was getting raising the long only, and that was an easy decision uh, from my standpoint. This looks really interesting. If I can raise, you know, two hundred fifty million dollars at a two percent fee, that looks that looks Not pretty too interesting, shabby, right? And you know maybe I I know some of the people that might take a look at this, and, and so that's how it started. And you raised a little more than two hundred fifty million bit. dollars. We so we ra- we raised. I think it was the largest Asian private equity fund ever. We closed it in uh, I think December twenty second, nineteen ninety four. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And we raised two hundred fifty, and then we raised a, f- a, six, a fund in India in the mid nineties. Uh, HSBC sponsored a team to invest in India and South Asia. It's probably one of the earlier ones then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember a drive with an advisory board meeting from Agra to Jaipur. I think it took eight hours. It'd be the equivalent of driving from uh, New York to Hartford. Right, it took eight hours. So yeah. not exactly a smoothly so it was, paved uh, road. India's changed quite a bit from the, yeah. the mid-90s. And then we raised a successor fund for Asia uh, after uh, the Thai bot crisis in Indonesia. The rupiah went from, I think, 2,000 to 20,000 overnight. And then the uh, U.S. firms came into Southeast Asia, you know, and saw that as a big opportunity. How, how did and, those funds do? Because when I yeah. think of Asia, I can't help but think of the peak in Japan in 89, and that's subsequently done poorly. I guess when you're doing private equity, you don't care about those mark-to-markets. The, you're working off a f- working business. A lot of the funds that were fully invested by the time of the Thai bot crisis and the currency crisis in late 97, early ni- January 98, uh, were really hurt. You know, they were generally uh, borrowing in uh, U.S. dollars, and their revenues now were reduced by, you know, 
10 times. Right. And so it was, a, it was tough. So once we raised the uh, successor fund, uh, the America, all the U.S. private equity firms started to come into Asia, forming groups, all, all the big names. We started to hire teams to take advantage as they're trying to expand their footprint. And uh, HSBC stayed in the, I would say, the lower mid-market. They raised another fund in 2002, 2003. Uh, I was at Guggenheim at that time, and they became a client. So it worked out well that uh, not only the group the group in Asia that we raised capital for, but HSBC had a group in uh, Latin America and also a, a group in, in Europe that uh, spun out and has la- later rebranded themselves Montague. But we uh, we raised uh, a little over $2.2 billion wow. for Montague in early 2000s. So you, you start Focus Point Private Capital in 2010. How was this different from what you've done previously in your career? And what services does Focus Point sure. uh, provide? Yeah, so we learned a lot at HSBC. We had uh, its as a minority shareholder is an is an insurance company, and that that seeded a number of the funds that we raised at Guggenheim. So, in addition to using the a broker dealer at Guggenheim to raise third party capital, uh, Guggenheim was a, a principal in a number of different strategies, uh, and we we would identify the the management team. The insurance company would would provide some seed capital to get some investments completed, and then we would go out to the market and, and raise the initial fund, and uh, and then we would generally raise a follow on fund two or fund three, uh, and a number of credit related strategies as well as well as some equity. Uh, following the financial crisis in 08, uh, Guggenheim, I would say less interested in in seeding new managers. Mm-hmm. And more using the balance sheet that they were building to uh, act more as a direct investor. Uh, middle of 2010, a lot of us on the the capital raising the, the private fund group inside Guggenheim became independent. Uh, we're still still very close with a number of the people that were there when we we were there, mm-hmm. and uh, Focus Point uh, raises capital for private funds and direct transactions. And I would say it's similar to what we're doing at Guggenheim in that we were all, we're continually meeting with inv- investors and general partners. One dynamic I'm noticing is increasingly the capital raising business, we're acting like, almost like a search firm because we're con- continually meeting investment talent, hmm. whether it's uh, talented uh, investors inside a private equity firm uh, other other independent sponsors that uh, are more comfortable or confident in their ability to find profitable transactions, and I've been unable to convince them to do a fund, uh, or talented limited partners that have been, you know, investing in the asset class for a number of years, huh. and uh, we continue to see it evolve. But you know, looking back, you know, we've probably raised capital for over 20 first-time funds. And uh, uh-huh. which requires a lot of work, but the reason you do it is for the successor funds. So let's talk about that because I tend to think in terms of venture capital doing a seed round and then a follow-up A round or a B round or a C round. When you talk about successor funds, are you going back to the same funds you seeded or is it different projects, different investments? Uh, I'll give you an example at, uh, at Guggenheim, for example. So we... 
following uh, early 2000s, after uh, after 9/11, uh, low traf- air traffic was way off, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the airlines went from uh, wide body to narrow body. You notice that when you fly cross country now, it's a single aisle, not a double aisle. Right. And we were introduced to a group that spun out of British Aerospace. And they had been buying commercial aircraft on their own account uh, and engines that power them. And they were backed by a big high net worth family uh, on the West Coast uh, that would, was the equity partner. It would be impossible to go to a bank to borrow money to buy a 747 without you know, revealing who the source of your equity was. So they had to institutionalize their business. And so Guggenheim did that. And by uh, committing some initial capital, we went out. And uh, the team went out and got some investments completed. And it was uh, as the load factors were off, uh, they were buying a lot of wide body 747s and converting them into freighter to take advantage of the huh. global supply chain moving from just to just in time delivery. So, component parts and things like that coming out of Asia to the West uh, wanted, you know, so there is a demand for 747s. So, we, the team, recognize that opportunity and did it and uh it's actually a big job to convert i would imagine uh, you know you have to cut a hole in this drill a big hole in the side of the aircraft it's got to be structurally sound right strengthen the floor but uh we were pretty successful with that raised uh got six, i think six investments completed proved out the thesis and we raised uh 277 million for fund one and the successor fund to get around to answering your question is uh, was uh, 737. We we got up to 741. We couldn't quite get to 747 in capital, and so we backed it down to 737. That's funny. And uh, true story. And uh, but <laughs> and now know, what did the, the they, successor so fund invest in? They they did more. They they the market had changed, and so they they started doing some new aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boeing came out with a new 747. Dash eight, mm-hmm. and uh, so they put in an order for some new ones, uh, and uh, the existing fund one, the entire portfolio was sold to a uh, another private equity firm had a listed vehicle to do aircraft leasing, and they they needed to grow, so they just bought the entire portfolio. So we had wow. a we we generated a nice return in a very short period of time, proved out the had a nice track record which enabled us to raise fund two. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's talk a little bit about some of the asset managers you work with and help raise money through. Walk, walk us through that process from due diligence to investing. W- what is that process like? It's, it's a lot of detail and it's a lot of work, but it's also... Uh you know, having done it a lot, it's pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And so we've met thousands and thousands uh, of general partners looking to raise looking to raise capital, uh, whether it's a, a, a new team that's spinning out from uh, a larger 
investment firm, or it may be uh, a team that's proven themselves and are looking to raise capital and they'd like to meet some new investors. On the due diligence side, there's a number of things to do. We, we make a lot of reference calls, uh, talk to the CEOs of the companies that they've backed to verify the track record that they're presenting. Uh, the the way, reason we do that, it's almost a triangle uh, to see if they actually do have a story straight. Uh, these GPs are all smart, clever guys, mm-hmm. and they're going to tell us about all the great deals that they've done and their track record and all that, and then verifying that by speaking to the CEOs to confirm that these are the guys that actually did the deals, and mm-hmm. then we try to look at their files. Do the files track with what the CEO told us and what they told us? And if those th- three things match up, they probably do have a process, and it's probably it's probably okay. Uh, and then and we, when you when you say GP, you're talking about the general partners who are running the fund, correct? As opposed to the LPs, the limited partners, the people who are putting the that, capital that into the fund, that, right? That's that's exactly right. And so, you know, I tell we one of the things we do is we tell the GPs, the general partners, that you know they're in the automobile industry, mm-hmm. they're selling cars. Every every GP that comes in to see us is a smart, very clever guy, and these LPs can buy any car they want, you know, and they're probably going to do fine. And uh, and so... So the it, question is, why should they buy your car? Correct. Our job is to try to identify that investor that is looking for a differentiated strategy mm-hmm. uh, where it's additive to their portfolio mm-hmm. uh, to bring in another middle market buyout firm. Right now, everybody, or a lot of growth equity and these software firms are doing very, very well. Most funds are doing well over 3x, right? And eyes glaze over almost with these limited partners to try to convince a limited partner to do more work. And you know what? I need you to substitute your existing manager for this new group. uh, And I want you to take six months of extra work on your end to get the same return is a tough, that's a tough one. You know, I need to have a manager that's got a differentiated strategy that is additive to their portfolio because huh. that's what a lot of what a limited partner is thinking about. How can I improve, diversify uh, Makes my a lot portfolio? Of sense. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. So hypothetically, you run these managers through um, your process. You check off a lot of boxes. Once the LPs put capital to work with these GPs, what are your responsibilities? Do they end at that point, or is it an ongoing relationship? Generally, it's you know they're handed off to the GP. You know our job is to manage the process from the initial contact with the prospective investor. Uh, I think they're a, they're a suspect before they're a prospect, right. right? And so we we go out to several thousand investors probably initially. Uh, to try to identify some prospects. And then once we have an initial meeting or initial video call, we uh, it's our job to help manage that process and move the investor through the different stages that they're going to be thinking about you know, towards making a positive decision. And that could be a second meeting to meet other members of the management team, getting access to a data room to look at due diligence files, uh, look at the portfolio performance, make some reference calls. Uh, probably we'll do uh, a visit on-site to visit visit the offices. You know, mm-hmm. that was an issue during 2020 when people weren't traveling. Uh, 
you know, how does an institutional investor modify their investment policy procedures to make a commitment to a fund uh, when they're unable to visit the office if that's part of their policy? So a lot of those policies were amended uh, and or replaced with more reference calls and things like that. So that uh, raises an obvious question. During the lockdown, were you doing everything by Zoom or, uh, or yeah. were people going out and actually meeting the, the GPs in person to person? The GPs were, of course, you know, they have one, one objective, which is to get funded. Right. And so they will go ready, willing, and able to go anywhere. Right. Uh, but a lot of the limited partners, the institutions were generally in the first six months of the pandemic, you know, not really willing to meet. Right. Or they weren't going. There's an age gap there, right? The GPs tend to be a little younger and hungrier, and the LPs are a little yeah. older and more seasoned. Am I? Am that's, I? Uh, is that a, a fair stereotype? That's not bad. Yeah. yeah. I think you're. You know, the, the younger guys would. You know, we had some meetings in. Uh, in so Miami, we had some family offices. We had meetings outside. Sure. Uh, we did convert uh, some in. I think in middle of the year. It was tough though. Uh, April, yeah. May. Scary. April, May was, you know, everybody was on adrenaline, not right. really knowing what was going to happen. Right. Uh, but a lot of Zoom. It was very exhausting, but, uh, you know, it's getting people are traveling again and taking meetings. So yeah. it's. So this raises a, another interesting question. Were there any lasting changes to the industry or how you do business because of what we learned during the pandemic? So lots of people still working from home. Lots of people are being more selective in their travel. Do I really have to go to L.A. or can I just make this a Zoom call? How has this yeah. impacted your business? How has the pandemic impacted the way you operate today? I think it's making uh, – I think it's making it – a little bit more efficient now mm -hmm. with annual meetings uh, there's always going to be a remote option and so these limited partners were before in you know months of May June and uh, September October November you know most of the time 50% of those let's say six months they would be out of the office uh, spending a day or two days traveling cross-country to attend an annual meeting now they can watch it on Zoom for an hour and mm -hmm. be much more efficient sitting at their desk. And I think that development, the fact that there is a remote option has allowed uh, general partners and, and, and capital raising firms like ourselves uh, more, more a better probability of uh, getting to a, a prospective investor that's in the office where they're not wasting time traveling mm -hmm. or wasting a half a week traveling to annual meetings. So, so, so it's improved the efficiency. Yeah. Does that give everybody a wider net they can cast? Your your geography isn't limited to your local city or even your local coast. You could pretty much go anywhere. I think that that has helped, but these limited partners are probably being bombarded by more and more emails right. incoming. Uh, and so it's still more valuable to have the one-on-one -on -one in person. Uh, but when that is not available, uh, we, we definitely try for the video call. And um, I'm curious as to these GPs, why come to a firm like yours as opposed to just hiring a team to raise the capital themselves? To hire a team, train a team, you know, it's it's a big expense. And 
Makes sense. It's it, you know, it's people, and that's management cost and overhead and yeah. time and, yeah. and lack of expertise. Correct. Uh, so, so you mentioned people are looking for uh, strategies that differentiate from everything else they have. What are some of the newer differentiated strategies or fund types uh, sure. that you're seeing more and more of that aren't as widely held as, let's say, commercial real estate or structured notes or things like that? What What's the new, new thing these days? Well, I, I think one thing we've seen the last couple of years is music royalties. You know, almost every month there's a new group targeting that. And, uh, you know, that emerged because these songwriters, these artists were unable to tour. And so that was a big source of their income is to being able to tour. And now they're uh, looking to sell some or all of their copyrights uh, to cash out. That's really interesting because the old days, people would tour to promote an album and they made the money from album sales. Now it's the opposite. They put out an album in order to tour. Once that shut down, they had some trouble. There's not a lot of money in streaming, is there, for most, most uh, artists? No, streaming saved the music business. Saved the business, but how much of that falls uh, to the artist? The artists, uh, I I think, I don't know the exact number, but I think every time a song is downloaded on iTunes, the songwriter gets, I think it's 11 or 12 cents. Right. Um, and But Spotify, with the streaming, you know, so the, uh, the younger artists are doing well mm-hmm. because the people listening to Spotify are not my parents, right? right? Uh, and so the new classics are probably performing much better and uh, than some than Louis Armstrong right. is being downloaded or streamed. Uh, but I think we've seen music royalties. We're working with a group that not only does music, but they'll be coming out. They do. They specialize in film and TV royalties. Uh-huh. And uh, the prior TV now you have a lot of series that are picked up over and over. Uh, so you know, for something goes seasons, to Netflix or HBO and gets th- picked up. Those ro- you know those royalties behave in a similar fashion to a film library, the, mm-hmm. the TV series, and uh, so that that's self liquidating uh, mezzanine debt. And so there's no capital markets event required for an exit, mm-hmm. and uh, it's generating a nice uh, low to mid teens net return to investors in a zero interest rate environment. And so, so let's talk about that a little bit because that's kind of fascinating. I know Dylan recently sold his catalog. Taylor Swift um, yeah. allowed streaming, which we hadn't yeah. previously. Pink Floyd. Uh, what does this look like when an artist said says, "Here's a dozen albums I've created over thirty years. I want to monetize this." Tell, tell yeah. us about that. I think a song a song hits its steady state after about. I believe it's about six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a good example. Uh, we worked with a, a music royalty group. We've raised three funds for them since 2010, so we've been at it for a while. But and uh, I think it was the, during the Olympics in the in London in 1990, no, 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, Call Me Maybe was on the radio sure. every five minutes. Now you never hear it. Right. And uh, so it took about. It, a song hits its steady state after about six years, and they they can monitor. You know, they collect those revenues uh, globally now. So whether it's played on on the radio, whether it's played in a bar at a skating rink, on you know, it's a set list at a concert by a musician. Those uh, artists receive those royalties every quarter, and uh, 
it's you're basically just doing a cash flow analysis to see how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. But you probably would be interested in it's a little risky prior to six years because you don't know where it's going to. So in hit, other words, where that after, song is going to hit its steady state, so to speak. So after six years, it's almost like the coupon on a bond, the yield Correct. on a bond. You have an idea. Hey, at this point it should yield X going forward. And not all songs are created equal, not all artists are. Some are gonna do two X or three X, but you don't know that until six years in. Correct, Huh? something like, yeah, and, more and or And so less. you've done three funds that? We, we did, we've done three music funds with a group, uh, and we've done two funds with another group that focuses on film and TV royalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their most recent fund, uh, there wasn't a lot of new films being produced in 2020 and 2021, they they dipped their toe into music, huh. and uh, so a little more diversified. I think there'll be some good interest in that uh, next year when they come out with their successor fund. How how large can this space to get? There's only so many songs yeah. that that get produced each year. It's only like 10 million songs, but not all of them make money. Um, how much room is there in this little niche? As a potential I, investment sector, music—it's—I it, don't know how big it will ultimately get to, but there, there's certainly a uh, long ways to go. And mm-hmm. I think the film and TV—the TV is really taking off. With you see the number of series created, and the, and they they're picked up for multiple seasons. Hmm. So, uh, and film is, you know, similar. Yeah, and huh. you know, once it's released theatrically. You know, in the in the in the theaters in the U.S., then it goes to Europe, then it goes to pay-per-view on demand. You know, and you're still seeing The Godfather every right. every Christmas time. Right. You know, it's on four tri- different channels. Right, a, a and, classic uh, Christmas yeah. movie. Yeah, huh. quite, quite fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Another uh, interesting strategy that we've been we've done three funds with a group uh, focused on the sale leaseback. And, and of, that, of real estate, of, of real, real estate. estate, of commercial real estate. So I'm a I'm an old world company. I own all my real estate, all my buildings, and I'm tired of depreciating them over time. I sell yeah. the building to you, and then do a 50 year lease. Not not quite 50 years, but yeah, that's exactly it. So you have the headquarters of a big pharmaceutical company, and uh, they. They're lo- looking to raise some cash, maybe not a, a pharmaceutical company, but some other business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great non-bank source of financing. You can sell the asset and simultaneously release it back for 15 to 25 years. Mm-hmm. You're protected against inflation. The, the man- manager is because the rent increases are built in contractually, mm-hmm. and uh, you own the asset. So you're actually in a better position than the bondholders that own the same credit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, We've done three funds with uh, this group. I, I think Sale back the investment banks haven't been promoting it because they probably, this is just me, a theory of mine, but the investment banks would rather convince the CFO of these corporates to do a bond offering or, or an equity offering because right. the fees are higher right. than suggesting, you know what, if I look at your balance sheet, you know, property, plant, and equipment is your largest line item. Why, do you, why are you in the real estate business? Why do you sell that? release it back and reinvest back into the business. Another advantage for the company is to do it is by entering into a long-term lease, they're going to get a below market rate, right? Right, And the manager gets to buy the asset at a below market price. Huh. And uh, Interesting. so we've worked with a, a group. It's been a little 
difficult raising capital for it because it's a hybrid. It's not quite credit because mm -hmm. it's real estate backed and the credit guys don't understand corporate real estate and the real estate guys don't understand credit. The real estate guys think the market's going to take is going to continue to go up and they're not looking at the the importance of the right. credit. But that's and, the opportunity so, when when nobody correct. really understood when the yeah. players in the space it's uh, it's adjacent not dead center yeah. what they do so they don't really get it. Yeah, and so our job is as a capital raiser for that is to identify the prospective investor that might be a little more thoughtful or is looking for a product like this which is generating, you know, 10 11% cash on cash. Mm -hmm. uh, with but without a lot of volatility and fairly safely. Yeah. And during the pandemic, they they actually this group collects their rent quarterly in advance uh -huh. versus monthly, and so they never had an issue all during the pandemic. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit about Focus Point. Um, what's its specialty? Where do you really put your focus into Focus Point? Sure. We, we raise capital for private funds and direct transactions. The typical fund strategies we are focused on are, I would, private equity managers in the mid-cap space mm -hmm. from $250 million to, say, $2 billion in, in fund size. Uh, growth equity managers, minority or managers focused on control, uh, some software, but all, all throughout the tech sector, tech-enabled services, software, some hardware. Uh, and we've lately done a little bit in the venture capital world, mm -hmm. and uh, we do a lot in credit and income-related strategies. Right. And, so who hasn't done a little something in the venture capital yeah. world these days? It seems like there's just a ton of cash flowing into that, but you mentioned equity growth. Are those private, or are you talking about hedge funds so that are in the these, public the, markets? The, these are uh, private equity firms that are not seeking control of the mm -hmm. businesses. So they're generally, it's a, generally backing a management team, bootstrapped, and they're the first institutional money going into the business. So is that- And the so companies are growing- you know, thirty to fifty percent annually, right. and they they need some equity capital to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. These growth equity managers provide that uh, with their guidance, get them to a hundred to two hundred million in revenue, for example, say, mm -hmm. and then they show up on the radar screen of the larger uh, private equity firms that are looking to add on. You know, looking for a portfolio company to add on to an existing platform, hmm. and so it's almost a food chain that Makes uh, sense. we're starting to see developed, which wasn't as apparent three to five years ago. But with the what's happening in the world of tech, it's 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 increasing rapidly. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Let's talk about land, sea, investment. Sure. It almost sounds like land and sea, but it's yeah. land and the letter C. First, what does that name mean? And then we'll yeah. talk about what yeah. it does. Of 
I've got a son named Lucas. I've got a son named Alex. I've got a wife named Nina. My name's David, and my last name's Conrad. So there it is. And uh, w- that that's the entity that owns the Focus Point Private Capital Group. And we, I'd say since 2016, 2017, we've been uh, through the capital raising business. Uh, we meet some, we, we started meeting some talented independent sponsors that were confident in their ability to get a transaction done where they, I was unable to convince them to do a fund. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we would raise equity for them and we started to participate in the promote structure with them. So Land C owns a portfolio of ownership interests in some direct transactions. And on occasion, uh, we participate in the promote structure with some first-time funds as part of our compensation. So when you say you participate, you get a slice of the GP, is that uh, right? Of the of the GP economics, mm-hmm. correct. Oh, not the control, just the economics, yeah. just the cash flow from that. The, the, carry, the part of the uh, percent of their carried interest for raising the equity. And mm-hmm. in some cases, we have invested in their GP. One dyna- one thing we noticed is with uh, independent sponsors, when they do have a direct transaction, uh, the lenders want to see a fund that the GP commit is generally 2% minimum. Uh-huh. Uh, the lenders on a direct transaction for a sponsor who does not have a fund are asking for 10 to 20% uh, for a GP commit. And they don't always have that lying That's around. A lot of money. And right. so uh, being able to help them solve the GP capital problem uh, helps improve our economic sharing. Makes for sense. For example. And that, and that sounds like those are potentially lucrative investments y- over yeah. time. That's that's our that's our uh, that's the object of the exercise, I guess, right? The, well, uh, as opposed to saying I yeah. want to put money into this fund that's going to yield eight or ten percent, yeah. When you're putting money into a direct investment, my assumption is those are looking for extraordinarily attractive opportunities. Yeah, they're the investors are looking for a higher return, mm-hmm. uh, and we've we've done some things in the real real estate related in the hospitality sector focusing on the extended stay in the select service market with a the former head, former principal on at, at a large investment bank he had a 20 billion dollar portfolio he oversaw at one point he's been operating at a, as an independent sponsor for 10 years right and uh we've done completed now six transactions with him and we have I guess uh, ownership in you know north of sixty uh, of those types of hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently identified a, a New York Stock Exchange listed insurance company to invest in eight uh, large shipping container vessels. Uh, that hundred and seventy million is now worth north of half a billion in only nine months, wow. as the the container market is red hot right now. To and say, to this say insurance the least. company was. Uh, Pretty savvy in, in recognizing that end of last year, and these are all end of life ships, so they go to scrap at the end of the charters that they're currently on. So mm-hmm. there's no exposure or risk of rechartering them at the end of these. And uh, hmm. the investor at that insurance company, clever guy, <laughs> uh, sounds like actually it. ex-colleague at Guggenheim. Oh, really? Yeah, really, really interesting. So I mentioned uh, land coincidental. It's really an anagram for you and your wife and your kids. But let's talk a little bit about triple net leases in real estate. Um, explain what that is and, and what's the investment opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, 
most balance sheets of most corporates, property, plant, and equipment is the largest line item. And we, there's an opportunity there to, it's another non-bank source of financing. Mm-hmm. So a, a corporate could, looking to raise capital could uh, unlock some of that real, get out of the real estate business, sell, sell the asset, simultaneously release it back for a long period of time, 15 to 25 years, and uh, have the use of those proceeds to reinvest in their business. Hmm. I think it hasn't been very popular. It hasn't been promoted a lot by the investment banking community because I think the uh, the cynical side of me says they're making more more money on a bond offering or a issuing some more equity than uh, suggesting a, a sale leaseback for an asset. Uh-huh. Uh, we came in contact, I guess, over ten years ago, with a very talented team uh, from uh, a guy who came out of uh, a, a listed company called WP Carey. He built their uh, international business. Uh, sold his share. He had a shareholding in that business. Sold it back to WP Carey and formed his new firm ten years ago. Uh, we've raised three sets of funds for them, uh, both in North America and Europe. And I, I believe that firm probably is pushing seven or eight billion wow. in AUM. Huh. Uh, it's a great, yeah. It's another non-bank source of financing in a low interest rate environment. Hmm. Really interesting. And I'm curious about something in the public markets. ESG has been, become really uh, such a buzzword: environmental, social, and governance. You, do you see anything like that on the private side, or is it much more blocking and tackling, less marketing and you know value-based investing? It's it. Uh, I would say most institutional investors definitely have an allocation to ESG, mm-hmm. and it's it's really increasing significantly on the uh, private uh, side. On the as private well. side, and that's a big part of their due diligence to go through. Uh, you know, there's ESG consultants now huh. that uh, e- ESG standards definitely in Europe uh, is probably further ahead than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is most of the managers have to be aware of that. But I think it's going to make their portfolio companies ultimately better because it's all focused on innovation, and and you know, innovation is technology, and these companies will just will be better, and it's going to bring about better international standards uh, that these companies have to operate under, and same with these GPs. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. So let's talk about the state of private equity here in New York. It seems to be hot as a pistol. Um, what do you see going on in the industry, and how has it changed over the past couple of years? I think if I looked at our roster of general partners that we were working with Back to say 2016, 2017, probably we probably only had one that ha- had a tech technology element to it. Now everybody does, even even a distress for control manager that we're about to uh, go to market with mm-hmm. uh, with a with an assignment. And this is an individual that led the creditor group to gain control of Cirque du Soleil last year. Uh, every Every strategy has to embrace technology uh, to improve their businesses and take advantage of the innovation and the and the competition is just becoming increasingly fierce. 
So these yeah. are tech components to non-technology companies. We're not yeah. necessarily talking about investing in semiconductors or software. These are more traditional businesses, but technology is a key part of them. Yeah, and I'd say absolutely software to mm -hmm. make them more efficient. Uh, you know, a, a previously you may have had a financial services investor that was providing balance sheet capital. Now they're focused on payments. And, and payment there's a strategies. lot of software involved in, in yeah, that. Yeah, correct. Hmm. Uh, but you're seeing that in specialty industrial managers, health healthcare managers, you know, obviously in venture capital, it's obvious, but uh, any type of strategy, there's a technology element uh, that they ha they need to be thinking about it because the competitive intensity with their competitors is only going to increase. Huh. Re really, really interesting. Um, so I don't know if that's an opportunity or a strategy. I don't know how to think about that. I what th else are you seeing that's different than uh, five years ago besides the impact of technology? I, I think the in this low interest rate environment, people are looking for yield mm -hmm. and income. And uh, how do they? They have a they have a benchmark, and when zero when bonds are returning zero, you know they need to look at other income related or alternatives. You know we've talked about sale leaseback, we've talked about music royalties, mm -hmm. talked about film and TV royalties, uh, asset back asset based lending in addition to just cash flow lending and leveraged loans. Uh, people are starting to see. Um, uh, litigation finance strategies. Mm -hmm. You've seen some of those. Last week, uh, I ran into two new income strategies I had never thought of. I don't know if they're scalable or we would do it, but one is uh, liquor license lending uh -huh. in California. Apparently, in the state of California, there are no new liquor licenses. You have to buy an existing one, and 15% of the purchase price has to go in escrow why the due diligence is completed on the new buyer, and that's a 10% business. It's wow. small. I've, we've seen uh, tax lien finance, you know, in different states, people buying the tax lien, and, uh, you know, people are, a lot of creative people out there trying to come up with uh, strategies that'll generate, you know, an attractive, you know, financial return. Huh. So we try to work our way through that, but you know it's got to be scalable, and the management team has to be credible, uh, and where there's a process in place where it's systematic and repeatable. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It might be a little early in the growth cycle of this, but are you hearing anything from clients about things like cryptocurrencies, blockchain, NFTs, that, that's the flavor of the month. What, what are you seeing on the private equity side there, if anything? Yeah, absolutely. People are looking at that and allocating resource to it. And when you see the consultants also spending time and uh, staffing up to do some research, uh, yeah, it, it's probably here to say. Some of the, large, some of the larger endowments have already made some allocations. 
in in the crypto and the digital currency world. So it's really, it's it's happening. Really, really interesting. So previously we talked about Zoom calls and the efficiencies that took place during the pandemic lockdown when there was less travel. When COVID first was beginning, it looked like a distressed asset cycle was going to begin, but it seems to be the distressed asset cycle that never happened. How are you looking at those sort of opportunities in the first and second quarters of 2020? We were thinking the same thing. Uh, we are. Uh, we we saw an individual that we know well who uh, led the creditor group in March April of 2020 to uh, get control of Cirque du Soleil. Right. If you think about that business, their sales stopped overnight Dead. globally. Right. Done. And uh, he. He, there was a 1.2 billion of debt on that business, and wow. this guy created the company for 300 million, and it actually relaunched it just prior to Thanksgiving, uh, all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we we thought the same thing. He's launched his fund. He's got four positions completed. Uh, you know, since I'd say 2Q, and he's probably up 1.6. If you think about distress, you've got a, a management team that's on a treadmill. And the, and the private equity sponsor every quarter is telling them, make the interest payment. And every quarter, the tilt's going up and the speed is going up on that treadmill. And these distressed investors are just waiting for that amortization schedule to kick in. And at some point, that's going to happen and they're going to lose the company. And uh, so I think there's a number of positions being built uh, on these potential targets, but we haven't seen the carnage that everybody anticipated a year and a half ago. Huh, it's really really interesting. Uh, we haven't really talked about deal flow. You've been doing this long enough that you know so many people in the space, uh, but what is it like? How, how do you find either the GPs you want to invest in or the specific deals that you might want to yeah. directly invest in? Yeah, the the uh, we have been doing. I have been doing it a, a long time, and some of my colleagues at Focus Point were uh, also at Guggenheim uh, from the beginning or early on. Uh, we we all have a pretty good network of people. We our sourcing comes from some of the experienced investors that we've known a long time. That mm-hmm. may be at some large endowments or foundations that uh, identi- have a good relationship with a group, and maybe. Th- some of that team is spinning out to start something new. Um, some of our deal flow comes that way. Uh, direct approach, where we go out, introduce ourselves, and a, G- a general partner may have been working with a, another capital raise partner for a number of years and might be thinking about, you know, maybe I should try somebody new and meet a new, get ex- introduced to some new investors that I may not have met that are not in the network of the existing capital raiser that I've been working with. So some of that and uh, a lot, we get emails all day long of new groups looking to raise capital. So I think it's a combination of all of it, some incoming, some proactive. Definitely we're always speaking to limited partners. What groups do you like? Have you seen any strategies in this area? You know, if I look at the market, there's three components to it. I, I call it the trilogy. Mm-hmm. You've got the limited partners, who are the investors. You've got the general partners, and and you have the uh, intermediaries, which are the consultants and the gatekeepers that work with a lot of the limited partners. And we're constantly hitting the 
limited partners, and they're they're meeting the sales force. They're seeing us at conferences. They're getting newsletters. They're reading about you in the press, mm-hmm. uh, and cold calls, whatever it may be. They're constantly getting introduced to products that we have. Same with the intermediaries, and and also with the the general partners. We're trying to get them, but the intermediaries are going to influence. The uh, limited partners, the limited partners may tell the gatekeeper or the consultant, this looks mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I'd like you to do some work on it. So those three things are constantly moving. And we it's we try, we try say we try to do it with rhythm and repetition, I, each one of these uh, market participants and how we spend our time. So we're used to the 2 and 20 fees with yeah. either VCs or hedge funds or private equity. Yeah. You guys are in a somewhat different niche. What does the fee structures yeah. look like relative to to regular yeah. alternative investing? Yeah, that's that's about right. So the rack rate uh, for raising a, the capital for an established group is probably two percent mm-hmm. on, on committed capital, and then you're protected on the successor fund uh, with say half fee on the fifty uh, percent of the fee. Mm-hmm. that they paid last time up to their level and then maybe something a little more on the incremental. Generally, an, an investor is is underwriting to do two funds with a general partner, mm-hmm. and then they'll re-underwrite them seriously on fund three. Mm-hmm. There just won't be a lot enough to come through by the time they're back in the market, especially mm-hmm. today when they're back every 18 months. Uh, on the credit side, the fees are a little less because they're charging a little less because sure. the returns are... Much less. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I'd say rule of thumb, if it, it's uh, if a credit strategy is returning, say, a net net return of between 8 and 10%, the managers probably can't charge more than 1% on invested capital versus committed capital. Right. And maybe it's a 10 or 15% carried interest versus 20. If the return is, say, 10 to 12% net, the credit manager might be able to get one and a half percent, one to one and a half on invested, you know, maybe a fifteen percent carry, and then north of twelve, they're working their way closer to two and twenty. Is there the same sort of fee pressure on the private side that we see in the public side? You know, you have yeah. Vanguard driving and and others driving race to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is great when you have scale, but everybody else, it, it definitely pressures them and they don't have the same sort of economies of scale that BlackRock or or right. Vanguard have. What are you seeing on the private side with that? Uh, definitely definitely that on the fund of funds managers, mm-hmm. right? The fund of funds generally, you know, 10, 15 years ago could get away maybe with charging 1% and 15%. Of, right. Yeah. And now, now on a, on a, they're all moving into trying to make money with co-investments. Right. right, and so that's where they're going to make their that's their bread and butter, and they're almost giving away the primary investment. Uh, huh, interesting. The, the fees that they charge on that. No, another interesting uh, development where I, I think we'll see a lot of fee, fee pressure are the private equity secondary managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they've raised incredible amounts of money, tens of billions of dollars, uh, from large large LPs. Uh, they're paying a slight premium versus, you know, following the financial crisis. They were paying. They were buying. Uh, a lot of these limited partners were out of balance. When when they rebalance their portfolio, 
when the stock market declined, they were way over their targeted allocation mm-hmm. to private equity, so they had to sell. And these secondary managers did very well. They were buying buying those positions at a, steep discounts. Now they've continued to raise money, but they're uh, they're probably paying a slight premium. Uh, and I think investing in a secondary manager uh, when there's a lot of liquidity doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. You know, I think investing in a secondary manager when there isn't liquidity, they're going to be buying in at steep discounts. Huh. And, really? and, and another dynamic is you're seeing these continuation funds being uh, formed where general partners now are basically creating their own secondary funds themselves. So a GP will have their best asset, their taxpayers, and they'd right. rather just continue to compound. And so the without having to pull it out and without having to sell it, on it. Right. correct. And so they'll take their best asset, put it into a, a, a continuation vehicle, uh, redeem out the LPs that want their capital back, bring right. in a new cap, new capital provider, and keep going. Huh, and so I think. We'll see what we'll see how that shakes out with with some of these secondary managers that have raised a, a lot of capital. So and, so uh, that raises a really interesting question. We seem to hear every couple of years a lot of t- chatter about doing away with the carried interest loophole. What do you think happens with that, and and how significant is it? I I think it's going to stay stay where it is, and uh, it is significant though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what motivates these, you know, very talented investors, and uh, especially on those secondary funds where you don't have to um, redeem and cash out; you can keep it running. Yeah, and correct. Inter- really and, interesting. Uh, so, so we we you mentioned liquidity. Um, uh, when I look at the venture side, there's just so much capital around, and we've certainly seen. Uh, a similar growth spurt in the private equity side. Uh, what does that do when you see all this cash and capital coming into the space? In the old days, two, three, four billion dollars, Wall Street was happy to participate in that space. Now it seems they're going further and further up the sk- size, uh, going further and further up the deal size scale, and what we used to think of as middle market continues to expand. What's the result of all of this capital rushing into the space? I, I think in the mid-market, in the mid, in the, let's call it the lower mid-market, two, 250 to a billion mm-hmm. is probably, uh, 250 is the lower end. You know, mid-cap would be, I'd say, nor- between 500 and a billion and a half or 500 and a billion fund size. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more exit opportunities when you're have a company at that level than a, you have a five billion dollar company, right? And so there's there's more there's more options in terms of exit. You could potentially IPO it. You could it might might fit for a SPAC, uh, or there's a lot of larger private equity firms that have raised you know significant amounts of capital and they have platforms and they're looking to grow. And I I think there maybe some of them overpay for some of those assets and uh is that valuation issue ongoing is is all that cash 
leading people to pay inflated values, even on the private equity side? I think I think they're f- some of the larger firms are feeling the weight of the money, mm-hmm. and they have to get the money invested, and so over, and they can't turn over, it down. Overpaying a bit, yeah, they might. Uh, you know, one anecdote for you is uh, I know a, a tech investor, you know, probably sub one billion, a large. You know, ten plus billion dollar firm was buying one of their portfolio companies. Uh, the smaller firm was going to roll their equity, uh, roll thirty or forty percent of their equity, you know, into the new new company. The larger firm came to them and said, "You know what? If we pay you a little extra, can we just take all of it?" <laughs> they said, yeah, "Sure, sold to you." Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> sold to you. One of my favorite lines of all time. Yeah. So uh, I think you're seeing some of that. Um, that's really that's really interesting. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime. What what's keeping you entertained? My wife watches more than I more of those than I do, but one that I definitely liked uh, was uh, the Serpent. The Serpent. Uh, the Serpent. Huh. That was, uh, I think it was a BBC series about a, a French serial killer in the 70s in Southeast Asia. Huh. And uh, Interesting. It, it's uh, amazing. And they finally, they finally caught him. Right. Well, and, spoiler uh, alert. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Interesting. It's, it's, uh, that one I liked. Uh, you know, I've seen a few, few series like that, but uh, Interesting. That, one, that one stood out. Stood out. Who are your early mentors who helped to shape your career? Yeah, I would say it would be David Patterson, who ran mm-hmm. HSBC's private equity business in China and Southeast Asia. He was based in Hong Kong, and uh, that's who introduced me to private equity in 1992 when he showed up at our offices in New York with two $35 million funds that he had invested in Southeast Asia and looking to raise a a fund in the U.S. with some U.S. investors. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Uh, tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading right now? Uh, what am I reading right now? Uh, I just, uh, a GP uh, gave me a uh, red notice. I came uh-huh. out a, a couple of years ago, Bill Browder's book, uh, where he had, uh, I think he was the largest foreign investor in Russia right. at one point. That was his first mistake. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's an amazing story once, uh, once uh, Vladimir Putin you know, seemed to cut his deal with the oligarchs. And, uh, you know, strong-willed guy. Yeah, and it's an amazing least. story. I think it would be a great movie. Uh, and I just uh, recently read Elon Musk. I read a couple of the Rocket Billionaires, you know, mm-hmm. about the... Sure. And then uh, Elon, that led me to recently read Elon Musk's biography. Uh, and, 
you know, incredible, incredible what he's doing, you know, simultaneously trying to disrupt the three most complex industries in the world, aerospace, financial services with PayPal, you mm-hmm. know, when he got involved there, and, uh, and automotive with Tesla, but- simultaneously. So, it, you know, he, he left South Africa, I think, you know, at 18, I think a distant relative of his, of his mom, you know, had had some. There were some relatives in Canada, and he went for it. Hmm. It's an amazing the rest story. Is history. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in in private equity or capital raising? I, I would say uh, definitely get an internship where where you can. We've we've we try to take in two or three interns every year, and. That certainly helps them when they graduate, uh, getting a getting a position at, at an investment firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't necessarily need to be a, a capital raising firm. I also think getting experience in credit. W- I would recommend that to anybody hmm. uh, coming right out. I think that is a good foundation that you that uh, can be very valuable. Interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of private equity and capital raising and credit today that you wish you knew 30 years ago or so when you were first starting out? I would say patience and perseverance, mm-hmm. uh, to use, come up with a couple words. That mm-hmm. raising, raising capital, uh, you, you, can, you can never stop. You just have to keep moving forward. Just like I, I, I ski race, uh, I, I still do the masters. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the coaches always tells me at the beginning of the gates, you know, for a practice run, keep moving forward. And I, I think just uh, raising cap, things, things are going to always happen. There'll be a key man event. Somebody will leave. Uh, a, a, a portfolio company will blow up. You know, could be some other, you know, the Asian crisis a, a pandemic can hit but you can never stop you just have to keep moving forward and i would say you've got to be patient and you just continually have to persevere huh. really really good advice um how are your knees gotta ask if you're ski racing still knees are good i uh i had my reconstructive surgery from a <laughs> soccer from a soccer uh incident in 1990 and they've it's still there Held up. it's still good so far so good Thank you, David, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David Conrad. He is the co-founder and CEO at Focus Point Private Capital Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 400 such discussions we've had over the past seven years. Uh, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg. Net. You can sign up for my daily reading list of favorite articles each day at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Mohamed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. 
A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.